lightly literary podcast, the only book club podcast that will now and forever defend really the honor and just basic dignity of the common house cat. I think, I mean, the noble large cats kind of get defense too. They get their respect from cartoons and such. But I don't, do you want to begin our defense of the common house cat then, Amanda? Do you have some principles or points you'd like to outline here? Yeah, first of all, cats are better than dogs. Um, One of the main reasons being that cats are way more self-sufficient. I think of cats as like teenagers. Yeah, they give you attitude, but they also sometimes give you love when they're feeling like it. And they Mm -hmm. also take care of themselves. Dogs are more like infants where you have to constantly, constantly pay attention to them. So cats are just superior (laughs) in that way. Also, I love cats. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was surprised to hear your positive and uh, praise of this book after that chapter. If you have no idea what we're talking about or why we're defending the common house cat, it is because we are here today with a book club episode, specifically a part one book club episode on the autobiography Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. That is the book we'll be discussing today. Um, this is a book club episode, as I mentioned. If you've never listened to us, the Lightly Literary Podcast, before, welcome. You found a good place to start. I'm Travis, joined as always by my co-host and cat defender, Amanda. Welcome <laughs> back, Amanda. I, I, too, am a cat defender and grew up with house cats, so I'm, I'm happily taking your side in that regard. Yeah. We have social media <laughs> accounts. You can follow us on Facegram, Facebook, nice. and Instagram. I like to combine words when I'm rushing through the intro, so I'm just going <laughs> to just mash together the things I see fit. Now, we have an Instagram and a Facebook account. They're both at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so follow us there for updates and schedule things and just notes on the books we're doing. So we're updating those. Also, recommend us to friends and family. Rate us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you found this podcast. If there's a system to review it, we always appreciate that. We like hearing from you. And we're here today again to talk about the book called Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which is an autobiography of Trevor Noah who grew up in sort of pre- and then post-apartheid South Africa, kind of like on the on the fault line of that of that huge, like, massive social change anyway. Um, we'll be spoiling the first half of the book today. Our book clubs are analytical deep dives, so we do discuss whatever part of the book we're talking about. We go into full detail spoilers, so if you're sensitive to that kind of discussion and talk, we will be spoiling the first half of this book, as much as that word means anything for nonfiction. Specifically, we'll be going through, as Amanda has helpfully reminded me, we'll be going through chapters 1 through 12, so if you have a copy of the book and you want to know where we're stopping, we're not going to discuss anything past chapter 12 today so that will be our aim and our mission um anything amanda up front before we jump in nope i'm good fantastic let's get into a more in-depth defense of the house cat then and talk about (laughs) witchcraft or something maybe we'll end up talking about that i don't i don't know if we will we'll uh We'll see. We begin most of our book club episodes, or at least the nonfiction ones, with a segment called Surprises, Pleasant or Otherwise, which is where we do exactly what it sounds like. We talk about things in the book that have surprised us so far. They can be pleasant. They can be otherwise. They can be good or bad. Amanda, why don't you start us off with a surprise so far? Yeah, I had um, a couple of surprises, but one of the ones is um, all the information about apartheid. I knew of apartheid, but I definitely didn't and don't still have a whole lot of knowledge about it, aside from what I'm reading about here. Um, I thought it was more like America's segregation, but finding mm-hmm. out that it is like way, <laughs> way more 
just intense. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. Well, I think the legal codification is, I mean, in a high school classroom, granted, at this point, who knows what people either learn or pay attention to in high school history, but the the thing that made, yes, apartheid so unique and uniquely horrifying, I guess I should say, not even just unique, but was the legal system that was built up around it. It was just the most, as he documents well in the book, it was just the most thoroughly racist system really ever devised and kind of put into place in in the real world. I mean, there were other more brutal acts enacted and i know he there was one moment where he kind of compares uh, historical traumas and genocides with the the hitler chapter or whatever the hitler mm-hmm. anecdote and so you know you can always discuss i don't know human atrocities in different ways but really i mean there's been no other governmental system that was based around racial codification so yeah in that sense yeah it's uniquely horrifying so yeah. Any any yeah, facts yeah. jump out that you just small or big? Just things you didn't know about? I mean, there's plenty of quiet. It's not like I'm some expert on the topic. There have been plenty of small things. Yeah. Um. Just the the very first page, actually, when you open it up, is that the Immorality Act? I was like, really? They put that into into writing? Like that's insane to me. And um, which is why he's he considered himself like he is born a crime because his mom and his dad are two different races. But Mm -hmm. also what was like so weird to me as well was that it's not just black and white. There's also a different category, a legal category for color. There's a legal category for Indian. There's all these breakdowns. And you can also, he was saying um, in one of the chapters that you can kind of, earn your way up to a different racial status and you can be demoted to a different racial status. I was like, that just proves how arbitrary that classification is. Like, it's just, it was just, I don't know. So many crazy things with that. Yeah, no. And to see, I know he makes a point of this at the high school he ends up going to, but the, to see then that they're even Indian is considered its own kind of group within that. And yeah. then also they didn't, as he outlines, and I forget one of the preambles, I think, but that they didn't know what to do. They being the government, the, the racist white government, didn't know what to do with certain groups like Chinese people who would immigrate there or Japanese. And so, yeah, it just becomes a very kind of random, sporadic, maddening system to try and yeah. kind of like wrap your head around, deal with. So. I'll uh, throw out my, I have a pleasant surprise I'll start with, which I think relates to yours, honestly, it segues well from it, which is, I think the intros before the chapters are working pretty well. They are kind of a really simplified crash course history about what's it like to be on the ground there, especially as we noted, if, if you're not, if you haven't read this book and maybe don't plan to, but you're listening anyway, Trevor Noah was born basically what seven or eight years before officially the legal system was overturned and apartheid ended and so then i mean he was just in a fascinating transition point in history like objectively he just lived through a very unique moment and was at kind of the perfect age to kind of comprehend it you know know enough about the old world to then see the changes in the new kind of a thing so at any rate um i think his intros in those little preambles are pretty effective actually like little mini history lessons with a little touch of you know kind of some of them are comedic some aren't i guess but i think Mm -hmm. like i think back to even the first one which is when he really breaks down the different tribal groups in and kind of south african history but then 
you know, he writes in a pretty pragmatic way. Like he just tries to make it clear what it felt like or was like there. I'm sure some scholar would read it and just like have a heart attack reading his summary of because, you know, it's simple. It like simplifies <laughs> uh, what these groups, how they relate to each other and, and who they are and everything. But, you know, it's from the perspective of just a kid who grew up there, not a not a historian wishing to document every part of a conflict or something. But I think right. for the most part, those have been nice little kind of, I don't know, warm ups or something, but I, I like the, the knowledge delivery in those. And I think that it, he, um, he delivers it in a nice way. It's, it's succinct, but also it ties into the story that follows in some way. So it's, it's, um, it's a really nice, I think, introduction to a topic that he delves into with his personal experience even more so with the story. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and I think the first one he started off well, or at least a really smart choice up front to do the the different groups, languages, tribal groups. That ends up becoming a pretty important part of his identity. This is, I believe, mm-hmm. the extended metaphor he uses is a chameleon. So that's that becomes an important part of who he is and kind of how he relates to the world and everything. Uh, what yeah. other surprises so far for you, if you have another? Um, another surprise for me is that this reads more um, like a collection of short stories rather than a memoir. So I was expecting it to be a memoir. So <laughs> the first two stories that I read, I was just like, "Is uh, that's a huge jump in time? Is there a jump in time? What is what's going on?" Like, <laughs> mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the on in his defense, um, not to say that I'm not hap- unhappy or anything. I, I enjoy what I'm reading. I'm. I enjoy the short story format, actually. Um, But on the cover, it says stories from a South African childhood, which is why I thought it was going to be more of a memoir rather than short stories. But I, I like... I like the the format actually that he's got going on here, as I mentioned and with the those preambles. It is within the chapters. It does jump sometimes, but it's largely chronological. Like I'm, um, this is one of the only ones when we've recorded that I'm almost done with. Actually, the whole book. Again, we won't spoil anything outside of one through twelve. But this is one of the ones where I've actually read ahead, which is rare. And the, the final stories are when he's basically an adult, like from yeah. when he's 18, 19, 20. I think he even goes to like his mid-20s in one of them. So it's – it's you're right, though. It does take on a short story feeling. But it uh, it's yeah. mostly chronological. So Yeah. Cool. Uh, that is – did we get the pleasantries out of the way? I think I'm ready. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, I actively uh, dislike this book and may even feel more strongly than that about it, but I'm going to use this podcast to, f- to feel it out. <laughs> but I hope I just put on 10 minutes of good airs and pleasantries. Um, man, I oof, man, I really dislike this. So my other surprise, more unpleasant than, I was trying to think of a way to summarize my feelings for this book. And do it in a way that was not like crude, simplistic, or just like mean. Because what's the point of? I don't want to be mean to this book. Right. I here's where I came away from it, and this was a genuine reaction. I think this happened to me around page fifty or so. Do you know when somebody super famous, usually not an author, in some kind of like from another facet of society, they write a big book? I'm thinking of like Malala's book, uh, mostly because mm-hmm. I use that when I taught middle schoolers. But have you ever seen when a super famous person writes a book and then they do a basically like a translated simplified version for like middle grades or elementary kids? Have you ever like seen that version of a book? Um, I've seen it for like um, Charles Dickens and stuff. Oh, they do this though for like, mo- they do this in, in for modern contemporary texts. Like Michelle Obama's book just got like a middle school version. 
So I did have she no wrote, idea. yeah, she wrote like a big memoir. Was that like a year or two ago? I think. Uh-huh. And so, like but that. yeah, and so they've taken that, they simplify it, cut out some material inappropriate for kids, and then they like they repackage it basically to re. I mean, you could think of it if you were being a little crass or not crass, but like a little cynic. Um, if you're being a cynic about it, you'd say like, well, they just want double money or what, you know, you can sell it again to like a younger audience, whatever. But it is, it makes something interesting and accessible um, to mm. a younger audience. Anyway, um, I quite sincerely, uh, this is, I think, again, the best way I could summarize this. I know I'm already long winded, but I quite literally double checked my copy probably around 50 or 60 or so to make sure I did not have this version, or that version of this book. I, I literally think that if you cut the swear words out of this book, this is like a grade five, learn more about world culture quality of book. And and actually, so I went to, then I went to Goodreads. He did, there is a published version of this book meant for middle grades age people. And it's, so he, there is this book, but for middle grades, and I don't have the middle grades one. I did confirm that, but it does exist. And hilariously enough, the top comment on Goodreads is I accidentally got this one. Is there any differences? And then, you know, so who knows, by the way, this is a Goodreads comment. It could, this could be wrong. But the top response to it hilariously is no, this book is 99% the same. They just cut the swear words out and then some prison stories that he includes in the back half. And that shocked me 0%. Like, I, mm. the quality of this writing, if this was ghostwritten by somebody who, like, writes for fifth grade nonfiction, I would not. I would nod in the strong affirmative to that. That is how I'm reacting to this book. I, I, I think I understand as far as like the style because it is very simplistic. And also even as far as the storytelling goes, it's very much what we preach against, especially in like college essays and stuff like that when we, we, have taught our kids, um, our previous students that it's, you know, you're supposed to show and kind of like develop a scene and everything. It does move very quickly, which is why I was thinking this is like, why in a memoir, you would expect more of a description and more storytelling Mm -hmm. as far as imagery, setting setup and everything else. But this one, is, is a short story format, which yes, in a short story, we still expect those elements just in a, a more concise manner. But what happens actually in, in these stories is that I think Trevor Noah just like almost completely cuts out a lot of that. And it's more about just kind of whizzing through these things, um, mm-hmm. making a point, very making a very clear point. I think that each of these stories at the end, he makes his, I guess, like moral um, very clear. Yeah, yeah. And so I appreciate that. But yeah, I can, I understand like as far as the, the stylistic components are, I think a lot of the time I agree lacking, especially as far as, character development with these other characters and setting development and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I pulled the quote. So when I when I went to look this up, it was because of one of the intros, which I know I just praised, um, but it was one of the intros around page 50 that, I, again, I literally went to Goodreads and, like, checked the back. Co- I, like, checked the back cover of mine and, like, looked on the insert to see if it said, like, now rewritten or whatever those books would preamble with, like, now redesigned or whatever. But this is mm-hmm. a paragraph from page 50. 
Language brings with it an identity and a culture, or at least the perception of it. A shared language says we're the same. A language barrier says we're different. The architects of apartheid knew, understood this. Part of the effort to divide black people was to make sure we were separated, not just physically, but by language as well. In the Bantu schools, children were taught only in their home language. Zulu kids learned in Zulu. Uh, Tswana kids learned in Tswana. Because of this, we'd fall into the trap that government had set for us and fight among ourselves, believing we were different. The great thing about language is that you can just as easily use it to do the opposite, convince people that they are the same. And then racism, he says racism teaches us that we are different because of the color of our skin. But because racism is stupid, it's easily tricked. I don't like it's I'm going to say I'm trying to phrase this in a, in a way that is not like, again, I'm not, I don't want to sound mean or something. Uh, but when I read things saying like language makes you seem different, racism is stupid. I I feel almost like again I if, the fact that this is not pitched for younger readers almost feels insulting to me that this is like an adult has to read this and think it's interesting or profound. I don't like. There's no style there to make it interesting. There's no the lesson is racism is stupid. Language makes you people different. And, like, almost written in that exact wording. And I, you know, it's not like I read it and was like, oh, I'm profoundly insulted, you know, return my dollar or whatever. It's We'll get into some more of the content, obviously. The book is has fascinating parts. This is a book, though, so utterly devoid of style. It It's like blowing my mind. And, and it's especially blowing my mind that this is by far the best-reviewed book we've ever done on this podcast. <laughs> and it also has like 500,000 reviews on Goodreads and is like by far and away the best-reviewed book. Uh, so basically, this is the last episode we're ever going to do. And basically, my faith in all of the reading public is now like definitely fully dead. <laughs> um, because that is writing that is so uninteresting. And so it's it is oh I again like there have been passages of this where the short clippy sentences of it and the like it, it pedantic but not even interestingly pedantic nature of it like again insultingly so like what age I, honestly the other reaction I had to this right so this is my most generous reading of this book maybe or something and this is like I'm going meta meta brain this is like nothing about the book would indicate this but Trevor knows like a polyglot you know he's like a very practical raised on the ground in South Africa like intelligent person who knows many languages like mm -hmm. this book does feel like it could be read by someone who like doesn't really speak English or some uh, something or like has a, has mm -hmm. like a rudimentary kind of like a you know it's like they, they're familiar with the language but they don't they're not immersed in it so it almost feels like in a way this is like a love letter in a sense to like let's make this accessible he thinks language is beautiful and sh should be shared so like what if anybody could read it kind of a vibe? I don't know if you're getting that vibe from from just the moment-to-moment -moment, like style of this book, but that's my most generous reading of it. I will say my reaction has been strongly in the negative. Yeah, I think that he meant for it to be very uh, simple and easy to read, which is why he really spells out, I think, the, the lessons that he's trying to impart with, or the lessons that he learned or whatever um, with each story. And I think that's also why, in the end, he kind of wraps up each story with almost like a, a moralistic overtone at the end of each one. Um, yeah. And I think that he does that because he is... He's not just telling us stories about his past. He's trying to teach people, I think, 
about um, what it was like to grow up in apartheid and how terrible it really is. And I think specifically with American audiences, because he keeps making um, comparisons between um, apartheid and what's happening in the United States, what has happened and what is still happening, right? So he makes a lot of comparisons there. So I think that he's trying to reach as many people as he can. that's not to say that I think that his style is super amazing because I'm like, eh, you know, whatever. I, I get it that he's he's got a purpose. So it doesn't bother me as much. And um, what's really funny, too, is that the quote that you just pulled is actually one of the quotes that I pulled for the cocktail party quotes. Oh, okay. That racism is stupid? Yeah. Yeah, the, um, specifically the language one. Language brings with it an identity and a culture or at least the perception of it. Um, and the reason that I pulled that is because, um, and I know this is like jumping ahead, but this yeah, is like yeah. in response to you pulling that. Um, the the reason that I pulled that particular quote is because in my notes I wrote down reminds me of Native Speaker by Chong Ray Lee, and what in in that the lesson is the same, right? The the takeaway lesson is the same is that yes, language creates these barriers, but I think that with uh, Native Speaker, which was a book that we both really enjoyed, Chung Ray Lee, he did a great job with actually never stating that. Instead, he took the time in the book to actually develop that feeling. Like, you know that that's the lesson that he's bringing out without him actually stating those exact words. And I think that's a key difference between Trevor Noah and, um, like, Chung Ray Lee and other um, novelists, right? People who are known for their writing and for their style. It's because he is just sending out messages and, and making it super duper clear without, um, fancying it up or making it more um, imaginative in a lot of ways. Man, there's so much you just said I don't agree with. Uh, well, let's just go line item by line item. Um, to compare Uh-oh. this to that novel is just frankly insane to me. But I'll start with the really simple. Let me just get some simple points out that I was thinking of when you were going on that. Do you not think that I could come up with an opposite reading of that simplistic theme statement from Native Speaker? Do you not think that if I wanted to, that I could provide a nearly opposite interpretation of it, given like the way the plot wraps up, his relationship with that Korean man, the relationship with his father? Like, do you maybe, okay, so his message here is that it creates an identity, but that's such a neutral statement that it's like a non-statement. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think you could finish Native Speaker having grappled with any of its multitudinous ideas or whatever and come away being like identity is complicated. Like I, you could, I guess you could, but like within the word complicated is like, that. that's like the third grade reading to a complex work with many interpretations, I guess is what I take away from that. Like he is feeding us this reading of a literal middle grades quality theme statement. And like, I guess, I mean, there's nowhere else to go with it. It's what he tells us. I just don't, you're not wrong, of course, and of course you're not wrong, like you read that book, we talked about it a million different ways, but like, I don't, if someone said, I read Native Speaker and I learned identities are based in language, I would be like, what? Like, who, what? That's, that's what you took away from that book? I don't, the book had like a million things happening, 
I I would just hope it would be that plus, I guess, is my my final thought on that, which is just like, um, I would yeah. hope it would be that plus five, five nuanced things. I, this book doesn't yeah. have the plus five. This book stops at the thing it just said. <laughs> like, I don't... Yeah, I mean... And it does have stories that certainly you could maybe complicate it with. Maybe. I don't know. Even that I hesitate on. But yeah, I mean, I I just I don't think those two book these two books have literally one sentence in common. Though I guess like you said, they have a thematic component in common. But like I I literally would be struggling to find half a paragraph between those two books that even reflect each other other than, you know, in theme, like you said. Yeah, I think thematically they match, but that's why I was saying like with Chung Ray Lee's stuff, his he develops his style and that's why even though they share the same theme, yeah, the the messages come to us in different ways. But with Trevor Noah, he's he is feeding it to us by the actual words and stating the actual theme, the actual message is almost like a fable in some ways. So yeah. yeah, yeah, and I suppose it's an updated fable because it's got some Game of Thrones references and stuff. So we've we've got that going for us. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I had anything else to expand on for the surprises. Though I know I went overly long anyway. Let's jump to the please continue make it stop segment. I know we you like you said you jumped ahead, which isn't that's not a problem in any way. But we'll uh, we'll do please continue make it stop in some order. This segment also pretty much it says it in the title. We're going to talk about things we wish to continue, things we wish to make it stop. Um, to give this podcast a little bit of tumult or, you know, a little push and pull, I'll do my please continue first. I'll throw mine sure. out there. Um, and I and I couldn't think of a way to make this sound interesting or insightful or anything. And now that I'm almost done with the book, I'll, again, I'll keep the spoilers out. We're just doing 1 through 12. But I really just wanted him to keep going into older ages. I thought after the first half, maybe what I was reacting against was it's really hard to write about your childhood because your memories just get fuzzier and fuzzier and it's all hazy and hazy and you just you can try and like you know puff it up and blow it up with style but he just doesn't attempt a lot of that so it just kind of reads like summaries of what happened with a little bit of his mom is an interesting character to be sure um but and so my hope is basically just like well look keep going into older ages maybe like with closer more recent memories you'll have more details it'll be sharper maybe he'll get into some things that maybe pop a bit more um to me i think i guess what i would say is and this is again like such a vague please continue so whatever but it's the one i could come up with which is i the content of his life is incredible and really undeniable and so the fact that he lived the way he did at the time that he did, the fact that he was born again in like the splitting fault line moment of apartheid being overturned, plus he was he was mixed race, or I believe in South Africa, colored is the term, which like legal term. And so like he, he is a rare voice in just history. So it's like this is an account worth having in the books just for where he was, who he was, what was happening. And so that was my please continue at the halfway point was like, okay, it's clear that he has moments to share stories to tell his perspective is it's just so rare. And so I was just thinking like, okay, let's maybe as he gets older, the details, the sharpness will come out. 
I think once you're halfway through the book, the writing style is what it is. Like I don't it, that. In fact, that would be almost be weird if the, you know the book turned on a dime and halfway and just thought, I'm gonna you know per, put on a different author's voice now somehow. <laughs> yeah. um, that would be, almost be a little bit strange. But it, in terms of when I hit the halfway mark, in terms of what I was looking forward to or hoping for, was just sort of like let's see what happens in older age. Let's see if his, you know, let's see if the things pop a little bit more. I think. Um, we, I can borrow uh, almost at this point it's a cliche to me because every year when I edit college essay students for or college essays for students, I say the same thing. I guess it's not it's a cliche for me because I say it all the time, but not to the world, I guess. <laughs> but like, you know, when you're writing about yourself, right? What do you have control over? The content, the theme, and the style. Like this man has chosen to write with literally zero style. Thank God the content is an all time selection. Like it. If this were about somebody growing up in Akron, Ohio, and it was written like this, would you read a page of this? Like, honestly, no. It, it's no. it is literally a styleless piece of, of world history here. Instead, it's like it, it, this is a hundred percent content. Like, if a college essay writer brought this to me. I would be like stunned at the life lived, and be like, "You have to rewrite huge chunks of this. This is like." the lack of inventiveness is like staggering. I even seeing essays at this point in the year that I have, have seen more daring like similes and metaphors and extended uh, analogies from like the 12th graders I've been reading. Like I, it's like stunning to me to see this, but you know, I'll wrap up by saying once again for the continue, like the content of it is, is unbelievable. I mean, he lived, he, he lived quite a life. So that's my please continue. Uh, yeah, well put. <laughs> um, I, I also am enjoying the stories um, quite a bit as far as like the insights into a time period and into a place that I'm I'm largely unfamiliar with. Yeah, yeah. Um, my my please continue is um, that I enjoy his humor specifically when it comes to some mm. of his more ironic points that he makes. Like he likes to point out the weirdnesses of, of thoughts and actions and behaviors um, by doing uh, comparisons. So one of the comparisons that I chose is from page seven. Uh, my mm. mom didn't want my mind polluted by movies with sex and violence. So the Bible was my action movie. Samson was my superhero. He was my He-Man. A guy beating a thousand people to death with the jawbone of a donkey. That's pretty badass. So I thought that was pretty funny because the irony is that like his mom doesn't want him to uh, be inundated with violence. But actually, he's right. Like Samson and, and several of the other biblical figures in the Bible, I mean, they're pretty violent <laughs> mm -hmm. um so i thought that was pretty funny the the references to he-man um it's whatever for me i mean i grew up with watching he-man um so i enjoyed that aspect but i i just think that the irony that he uses in his um writing which fits more i think with his um stand-up comedy style as well mm -hmm. yeah um yeah. that's what i enjoyed yeah. as well at my most generous moments with this book i do wonder if as a trained stand-up comedian 
he forgot that tone of voice is not tone in writing because I can imagine and i wonder if he did the audiobook for this guy i would god i would hope he did it it deserves <laughs> it needs it so bad you can't have some neutral british person reading this or whatever like you <laughs> bring him into the booth uh but i did wonder like but you know i mean this was heavily edited this is a huge book it's a huge success like there's no way that the people who edited this didn't look for like some kind of written voice but there are just too many start and stop sentences that it's like with a stand-up's confidence and timing and tone and elevating volume and whatever that like i could see some bits working in here that fell flat for me i think i mean for one of my make it stops was analogies and similes that were just feeling a little bit simplistic or maybe like pop culture heavy i pulled a few on 36 he talks about going to see some extended family he says the first family Mm -hmm. were the heirs so there was always the chance they might get poisoned by the second family that was his family um it was like game of thrones with poor people we'd go into that house and my mom would warn me so like i mean the joke there is do you get game of thrones and plus poor i don't like yeah i mean maybe if it was delivered with some kind of you know confidence or panache or something um, from 54, another quick one. I pulled a few just quick hairs. I won't dwell on them for too long. Um, on 54, he mentions about, uh, is it Soweto or Soweto? How have you been going? Yeah, in my mind, I keep calling it Soweto. Soweto, okay. Um, I soon learned that the quickest way to bridge the race gap was through language. Soweto was a melting pot. Families from different tribes and homelands. And then most kids in there only spoke one home language, but I learned several languages because I grew up in a house where there was no option but to learn them. And then from there... Can we just put the melting pot forever to rest? Like, that's the cliche to end all cliches. I think I just mm-hmm. am done with the melting pot forever. I don't. It's the the least evocative image to have ever been said, at least for Americans. I maybe people from other places aren't fed that analogy as much as American kids are in school. Um, the final one I pulled would be the dog and the bike. This one is more comedic, I think, in tone and everything. Um, Fufi, his dog, was the love of my life. Beautiful but stupid. I raised her. I potty trained her. She slept in my bed. A dog is a great thing for a kid to have. It's like a bicycle, but with emotions. And I'll pause there. I don't... Is that a joke, do you think? Or is that creative? Is it... I... I'm not even frankly sure. I guess, like, the maintenance aspect, he means. I don't... None of the traits he just listed would really fit for a bike... I guess, you know, the maintenance part would. But, but yeah. like, is that a joke? It, what's the... Like, I don't, I guess there are times when I'm wondering like, oh, is this like a punchline joke or, but it's all delivered with such straightforward simplicity with no surrounding buildup or it just feels flat, I guess. I'm not sure if you can read any of those quotes that way. I don't think the melting pot was a joke. The other two I I think were. Yeah. The melting pot one, I don't think was a joke. Um, just some cultural shorthand. Yeah. It, the, the dog one. I don't know. I think that's just like a, a his way of of being or of trying to be clever with a comparison, I suppose. Um, yeah, it feels like um, what's the way I can say this? Kind of like it's I I, don't, I guess all wisdom should in a way be simple. But I was thinking of it's like simple wisdom or something, or like simple kid wisdom. I'm not maybe that's the angle I'm looking for, but mm-hmm. I just don't. Uh, how about this then we can this is like a big moment the the one to two page digression about cats i think that was in an intro right one of the preambles yeah uh was that funny to you like did you read that section thinking he's goofing right now or no 
because I read that as straightforward cultural commentary and like slash a little history. That's how I read it too. So not that wasn't comedic to you either, though. No. Oh, okay. I thought that might would might uh, have been one of the moments I was like deeply misreading because I was like, oh, maybe I'm really just not getting his humor at this point, or like I'm just not connecting. Because at that point, I was like, this is so extreme and odd to say. Like, I think there's a line in there like, "Who cares if a cat dies?" Or he, you know, something like that. He says, and I was like, oh, I th- I think I'm just like not vibing with this humor. But you thought that it was all straightforward. Yeah. That's how I read Gee, it. That's fucking bleak then. I <laughs> No? <laughs> we'll get to his personal traits that this book displays a little later because I have that too as a sidebar. <laughs> um, but okay, I guess I don't know what your reaction is to that. I guess mine was like, at, at that point, I was certain it was meant to be comedic and that I was just off when I was reading it. But okay, I wasn't sure if you had to Do you know what page that's on? Maybe I misread it as well. I don't. I don't. I think it was one of the preambles. Um, we can always pause to look for it and I can like cut this out, you know? Do a little edit. Yeah, here I found it on. It's around ninety six. The the preamble chapters don't have the don't have the page numbers on them for some reason. Oh. So oh. it was front page news all over the country. White people lost their shit. Oh my word, it was insane. The security guard was arrested and put on trial and found guilty of animal abuse. He had to pay some enormous fine to avoid spending several months in jail. What was ironic to me was that white people had spent years seeing videos of black people beaten to death by other white people, but this one video of a black man kicking a cat, that's just what sent them over the edge. Black people were just confused. They didn't see any problem with what the man did. They were like, obviously that cat was a witch. How else would the cat know to get onto a soccer pitch? Somebody sent it to jinx one of the teams. That man had to kill the cat he was protecting the play. In South Africa, black people have dogs, and then that's how it ends. Yeah, I took that to be pretty serious in that he's pointing out, I think, like, he, he makes references to the idea of witchcraft actually a couple of times. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I'm, so that's like an actual real, like, belief, right? So mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I didn't read this as any kind of joke. I read it as, like, he's telling the reader about the idea of like superstition um, and, and the power of superstition in, in um, his community. And I think that he also sets it up in my mind. It, it reminds me of, and perhaps this just shows my own bias, but like the superstition, so superstition, the idea of witchcraft, it's akin to me to um, religious fanaticism. Um, and his mom is very, very religious. So I was thinking about that as well when I was reading this preamble and then this I, the following story. I think it was the t- it was the way the, the transition at the end I thought was meant as kind of a funny twist then. Like to obviously go from cats to dogs and it's such a, yeah. you know, like I thought that was maybe the humor part. But then also the, I mean, he also uses it as a digression to do a classic. Again, though, this to me is a, this is like a Twitter joke cliche of like white people care about animals more than other people, which I, I'm i not even discrediting that as like a, a social criticism or, or whatever commentary or whatever. But like I, that was the other part of it where I was like, oh, that's like a cliched like joke about white people love dogs i don't again like the validity of that i'm not even here to dispute it might it might even be true i don't know but like that was the other thing in the middle where i was just like oh that joke like it's i that's a pretty common that's a cliched joke it just is i don't (laughs) i don't know what to say about it uh yeah i I read it as like um um like a like he's trying to point out the absurdity 
of the the way that people have they are up in arms about things that yeah yeah he feels like they should be in up in arms about other more important big idea things um which he points out actually in, in other stories too in some of his other preambles and in some of his other points right um the the idea that people just they have their things that they want to champion or whatever, but then they miss the bigger picture or they, because they are all Western, right? They don't know what's going on in Africa or Mm -hmm. in Asia. And they just kind of completely miss the point because they are so Western centric is a point that he's made um, in other preambles and stories. So yeah, it has been, that's how I viewed it. It has been a pro kind of like multicultural, you know, empathy or whatever immersion text uh, mm-hmm. the depth of that i'll leave to the listeners to decide i my, i think my uh, interpretation of its depth is is clear but anyway um one more make it stop for me then i'll just throw it out there since we're i don't know pausing that section anyway i yeah. so i always hesitate with this you ever read david sedaris the humorist writer no man trevor Noah would do well to read it because at least sedaris has like really fierce tones like he, that guy makes a choice with tone and really rides it so i i can admire it more now having read this another uh, presumably humorous book i think that was why it was getting a lot of praise or something but anyway uh, the one thing i struggle with is david sedaris claims and i have no reason to believe he's lying that he journals every single day and has done that for like 30 years or something crazy so when he writes books about the past it's the details he remembers seem impossible to me i'm like there's no way you're making this up but and you know partial part of it might be made up for the literary part of it to make it interesting but like he really does say he keeps track of every day and so mm this is all building to the point that when you include dialogue in a, in a memory that is decades old, I just have to question if one, it's real. And if two, it's not real, that's okay. You can remember things hazily, but then if you're going to include that, I hope it adds a punch or interest Uh, for the amount of dialogue in this book. Do you find that it's doing anything for you? I, I, I'll pull an example that I have on 98 that just, I think, I feel like it, the narrative comes to a dead stop at some of the dialogue. I'm like, what is this doing? It literally feels like a like a like an Aesop fable, and I'm like, why is mm-hmm. this here? Like, what what is happening? You could have summarized this in a sentence, and I, it doesn't add interest, narrative, depth, drama. I don't. So anyway, this is when he loses his dog, uh, Foofy, and goes over to the neighbor. I went up to get to the gate and rang the doorbell. This colored kid answered. May I help you? He said. Yeah, my dog is in your yard. What? My dog. She's in your yard. Foofy walked up and stood between us. Foofy, come, I said, let's go. The kid looked at Foofy and called her by some other stupid name, Spotty or some bullshit like that. Spotty, go back inside the house. Whoa, whoa, I said, Spotty, that's Foofy. No, that's my dog, Spotty. No, that's Foofy, my friend. No, this is Spotty. How could this be Spotty? She doesn't even have spots. You don't know what you're talking about. This is Spotty. Foofy, Spotty, Foofy. Of course, since Foofy was deaf, she didn't respond to Spotty or Foofy. She just stood there. I started cursing the kid out. Give me back my dog. And it goes on for, honestly, another, like, quarter page. I'm just going to pause there. So I think, I don't know. Like, again, if a person... I mean, I was trying not to read it super flat there because I don't want to be a dick about it. But like maybe if he was doing this as a stand up and like screaming and then like he would do a longer pause for audience laughter and then screaming and like I can imagine that being maybe funny if he brought that energy to it. 
This is mm-hmm. dead on the page. Like, this is dead. This is the least interesting exchange to ever read. It's kind of like that man on first joke, but with no humor or pun to it. It's just literally two people saying a name. The, the thing you'd want to play up would be the dog's deafness, but there's only a commentary on it at the end in half of a sentence. Which right. is like, that's the thing. I think that maybe was intended to be like the funny aspect, of course, is like, I mean, that's kind of the point of the story, right? Is they had this misunderstanding of this dog all these years. But like, this is a a, a wasted page to me. I, it, what did that do? I, <laughs> And I, I mean, I obviously chose the example that stood out the most to me. But I can't say that except for his mom that any person speaking in this book ever has done anything for me to, to add depth, interest, engagement, characterization whatever like his mom pops for sure but i i don't know i'm not sure if you reacted the same way but that's my feelings on that yeah as far as dialogue so that particular example that you gave i remember reading that and i was just like okay i I think i could skip over some of this dialogue but generally speaking the dialogue is not memorable for me like i just have no memory of it i think because it does not stand out for me it well and so okay so i've given some nice readings and have been generous i don't then i'll give a a a non-generous reading of this then it feels like filler to me like if he had an interesting narrative voice and could summarize the feeling in the room the expression on foofy's face his emotional status the boy like if he could narrate then that scene should be narrated because the dialogue Mm -hmm. isn't that interesting and but that ate up a page basically like i and i'm not saying he was word padding this book that's an insane thing i'm saying there it doesn't feel like at any point there's confidence in this book for a narrative voice of imaginative sound to like say a thing that happened like it's either told to you or you learn the lesson and he'll tell you or there's dialogue like I don't, and mm-hmm. and again, to me, I I just bristle at dialogue from memories of a childhood because you, for one, you just don't remember. I, you have a you have an impression, right? So it's like, well, then right. I, do something interesting with that impression. We get that. I'm not sitting here being like this has to be on the historical record. Let me comb through the you know the pages of real text or something. I don't know. I just I guess again, I picked the most illustrative moment that I could find or remember, but. I just feel like there's been a lot of dead air in that regard. And, you know, maybe what it's missing is like a stand-up's voice, you know, to like speak. I think that's a good point because I feel like the things that I like are are some of the the jokes that he creates, his sense of humor, that I get that translates well on the page. There are other attempts at humor that I don't, uh, I'm just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, I get what you're trying to do there. But I think that if it were a if it were a verbal performance, then it would be more dynamic. So I think that what he's doing Mm -hmm. or what I'm assuming he's doing is that he's just taking, as you said, he's just kind of like writing in the way that he would give a comedic performance. And it's just not translating as well because there are no like, you know, beats for a pause. There's no um, guffaw. There's no facial expression that we can see or anything like that. So it's, it's going to, fall a little bit more flat on the page than it would Mm -hmm. as a performance yeah yeah for sure any other continues or make it stops for you um the only make it stop that i i had put down was that and you pointed it out is that he does sometimes use cliches uh so i'm just like every time i come upon a cliche i'm just like oh no (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the ones that I pulled is from 104. My mom was wild and impulsive. My father was reserved and rational. She was fire. He was ice. They were opposites that attracted, and I'm a mix of them both. So there's, there's two cliches there, fire and ice, and the other one being opposites that attract. So <laughs> I was like... Nice. What a punch. What a punch. Amanda, yeah. he dedicated an entire chapter to the profound extended metaphor that he's a chameleon. I, when I was teaching sixth grade writers, would go out of my mind. I was desperate to get them writing creatively and inventively and avoid comparisons to animals. Animals are awesome and they have really interesting traits and lives. But like that is bottom of the barrel creative writing cliche to compare yourself to an animal. That is like absolute literal sixth grade quality. And and that's what he, that was his profound, that's it? Chameleon? Like that's in like commercials. That's like a commercial level advertising. If it's so cliched that it like has diffused into the advertising culture, like I'm pretty sure there's a Budweiser chameleon at some point. Maybe those are, I think those were frogs. <laughs> Um, Oh, yeah, they were frogs. I think they might have had a chameleon for a little bit, too. Who the hell knows? Um, Thanks to Google. I just just couldn't – I mean, at that point, I already looked up the – like I said, I already went through that whole journey or whatever. But I was just riding the wave at that point, man. That pretty much set me in stone, and I was like, okay, this is what this is. I'm just going to read how he's a chameleon because guess what, Amanda? Do you know what chameleons do? Do you get it? They they can change if their surroundings are different. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what he did, what, and this is how the, it narrates in my head, by the way. This is the pace of the narration. So, so he, when he's with, around different neighborhoods, he d- changes. So do you get it? I don't, I don't think I get it. Okay, just checking. <laughs> just thought I'd do a little bit of my internal narration for you just to, so you could vibe with me for a second. Please continue to read it in the manner you see fit. I'm going to finish it in that voice in my head. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's move now to the cocktail party quotes is, uh, assuming I keep this episode up and don't delete it after we finish recording, um, the cocktail party, cause man, we, I, the whole reason I picked this stupid fucking book is cause it was fucking popular, man. What are we doing? <laughs> this is like, what are we going to promote this now? <laughs> Be like, remember that book ever 500,000 people loved on Goodreads. So it was like the best thing they've ever read. Remember, like, please come listen to our stupid podcast. Uh, um, cocktail party quotes is a segment we like to do for nonfiction, especially this is nonfiction. So we'll move to those now. These are quotes from the book that just warrants, we think, further discussion. Maybe like, you know, some party chatter could provide for an interesting chat. Amanda, why don't you start as I go and delete my hard drive? Um, <laughs> go ahead and throw out a cocktail party quote for us. Um, so we already did one of mine, which was the language one. So um, another one that I chose is from page 39. Um, he says, when you strike a woman, you strike a rock. As a nation, and that's a saying in South yeah. Africa, as a nation, we recognize the power of women, but in the home, they were expected to submit and obey. So I chose this one because it could be something that... Um, when you're talking to anybody, I think that this is a pretty common idea. Um, and it's not just a South African idea of like women are 
strong in in as far as like taking care of family as as well as sometimes um, having an outside job outside of the home and all these other things but then mm-hmm. the expectation at home is that they are that the the man or the the partner the other partner is the person who is like in charge right, they're the right. ones that are in charge financially and all this other stuff so um I think it's interesting that that idea is not just Western and it's not just related to um, religion either, but it's like it's a cultural thing and it's and it's a cross-cultural thing. So, no, it's I think the uh, well, okay, that's in the back half. I'm going to hold, hold, hold. Sorry. (laughs) I wanted to spoil something in the back (laughs) half. Um, That quote will come up again, not literally, but the. Uh, the core idea of that, well, let's revisit. We'll put a pin in it. For now, though, let me, I'll comment on this and say, I mean, his mom is the figure of this book without a yeah. question, basically, like without a doubt. And I think he keeps a little enigmatic. She's a little enigmatic, like the, you know, the, her motivations for having a kid are never fully satisfied. Not that they need to be, you know, her her explanations in there, but it's sort of even he seems like not satisfied with the answer. But then like the way she roamed around in her youth and like lived in different neighborhoods, figured out how to sleep in bus stops for a little bit to like transition into a white neighborhood to be a housekeeper, I think it was, or roughly something like that. I just, I mean, I, I know I texted this to you the other day when we were just chatting about the book, but it's like, I would, I would give anything to have her book instead. I would give anything I to have her voice. I, I don't even care if it was a religious, like paranoid screed, I, I, like she, I, her, the intensity of her, I just would like to see on the page. I don't know if, you know, it's an imaginary thing, but she's like the figure of the book, I'd say. She is. Uh, she's a very interesting figure. She's the only other person so we see like trevor noah obviously through like his actions and his behaviors in the book Mm -hmm. but i think that there's there's a revolving door of characters that we see a couple of times in each of the stories but the his mother is definitely the figure that is um there the most often and i think the most developed and as far as like dialogue goes i think that i had said earlier that i what with regard to the dialogue, I just don't remember it. But what I do remember is like his conversations with his mom. Yeah. So I yeah. think that he writes her very well and perhaps even like truthfully. Oh yeah. In some ways he, he knows her tone and he knows what she would like her, her word choices and stuff. So she does well with that. And also the um, story with the, where they were like exchanging the letters because like, yeah. Fantastic. They... <laughs> but that's yeah. my moment maybe of the first half. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it Tremendous. was so great. I, I loved that. Yeah, yeah, very charming and very hilarious. And yes, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't know how a person of her stature and demeanor would not sear into your memory, but she clearly has. I mean, it's like, it's no, I guess no surprise, like you said, that he remembers her clearly so vividly and everything. Like yeah. it's, yes, that that has definitely been a standout moment. Um, let me just segue into this then, Amanda. Go ahead and brace yourself. I'll pull a oh, cocktail gosh. party quote for you. It's just very fitting given the conversation we just had. <laughs> um, on page nine, let me find mm. it quick. I think it's here on page nine. Oh, here it is. 
If it hadn't been for the Volkswagen that didn't work, we never would have looked for the mechanic who became the husband, who became the stepfather, who became the man who tortured us for years and put a bullet in the back of my mother's head. I'll take the new car with the warranty every time. Good bit of humor at the end there, coming off of that foreshadowing. Is that the (laughs) best or worst example of foreshadowing to have ever been put on a page? It's got to be one or the other. I refuse to accept any other explanation for it. (laughs) It's either the best or the worst. I'll leave it to you. You just take it away. (laughs) I don't know. I I was like, I think it's foreshadowing, but but at the same time, I'm like, he's literally just telling us what happened. So that can't be foreshadowing, right? I guess not. I guess not. (laughs) It could just be that he just wants to make that hang over the whole book. I mean, but, you know, foreshadowing has a way of hanging over something. I, I, that was a strange early moment for me too, because, okay, let's, okay. So you're leaning into real gallows ish humor, I guess then like, all right. I mean, that's, it definitely hit a tone. I don't think he's even come within viewing distance of a tone like that in literally the rest of this book. I mean, he curses occasionally, but like the swing of that, um, he attempts like with the dog thing. Remember earlier he talks about the cat getting murdered on TV and then says like, so we got dogs. Like it's, you know, it's clear he likes that swing. But because there's no inventiveness in literally any of the language used, it's just like it's it's like elementary quality word choice that I don't I don't know. I mean, again, I get the I think I get the tone, I think, of what was intended. And but that was just like I really thought the book was going to take on a whole different because that's page nine. It's early. I I really thought the book would take on a whole different shape than it did because that kind of hit me in the face. I was, I, you know, that's a, that's a reread for sure. You read that and you're like, wait, did I, I did misread. And then you go back and yeah, I had reread that at least once or twice. It definitely colors the, the reading too, because I was expecting after reading that, I was like, okay, so perhaps this is his mom died from that. And perhaps this is meant to be like, uh, in remembrance of his mother. Um, mm-hmm, so I was mm-hmm. expecting all the stories to have something to do with his mother directly. Yeah. And then yeah. I was like, oh, well, okay. So if it's not that, then maybe it's leading up to like this stepfather figure. But it, I mean, his stepfather so far has only been in like one story. Right? Yes. Yes. So it's like, yeah. well, it can't be that. And I'm just like, well, why, why introduce it? so early on if it's not a major component for the rest of the stories that you're telling yeah but yeah i I will say that i we can't now do the segment because i've ruined utterly ruined it this episode but like we can't do the prediction segment but (laughs) he definitely goes into more depth (laughs) about his relationship to that that man his stepfather so it's in there it's in there i'll you know well yeah obviously we can get into the details later but yes it does he does get time on the page and everything so um so I forgot what I was going to pull for my other cocktail party quote. I had a couple others. I had one from 119 about apartheid that I thought was pretty insightful. Let me just flip to it quickly, see if I can pull it quickly. You never know. You never know. Sometimes it takes time. Oh, yes. This is about the legal definition. And so I think, again, weirdly enough, Trevor Noah, the, his, the casual historian, it worked for me the most, I think, of in anything in part one. That was like those moments where he allowed himself to like explain a bit of history in a kind of casual tone. I 
just kind of worked for me um, on mm-hmm. 119. The legal definition of a white person under apartheid was one who in appearance is obviously a white person who is generally not accepted as a colored person or is generally accepted as a white person and is not in appearance obviously a white person. It was completely arbitrary, in other words. That's where the government came up with things like the pencil test. If you were applying to be white, the pencil went into your hair. If it fell out, you were white. If it stayed in, you were colored. You were what the government said you were, and then later. And colored people didn't get just get promoted to white. Sometimes colored people became Indian. Sometimes Indian people became colored. Sometimes blacks were promoted to colored, and sometimes coloreds were demoted to black. And of course, whites could be demoted to colored as well. That was key. Those mixed bloodlines were always lurking, waiting to peek out, and fear of losing their status kept white people in line. And then he kind of goes on, lived in a, talks about purgatory state for him. So... It's just a very kind of, I mean, it's casual with all the writing. It's it's simple, and that's what it is. But it, it is in its way kind of erudite, and I think he chooses good examples of just the heinousness of it all, the rampant legalism that makes everything, just to hear that said out loud or, like, just to read the quotes, like you noted at the beginning, the, the legalese of it is, like, maddening. And, yeah, just to see it so clearly in a structure and system is, and to see it so blatantly in a structure and system in the U.S., we have our own fight to kind of, prove to people in a way that systemic racism can exist even if it's not you know in the books like that it can still be in the books if it's not and so anyway just to see it like that is kind of its own heinous revelation and i think he just presents it pretty you know clean-eyed and or clear-eyed i meant to say so yeah i i agree i think um that kind of information that he imparts it's funny because the other quote that i have is from a page yeah. before your quote yeah yeah <laughs> Where, yeah, where, where he imparts some, some knowledge about the society or about the legal system or um, other observations and, and facts about apartheid and, and the society at that time. I find that so fascinating and I love it when it's dropped in there. Um, and so when I read the, the story aspect of it, and he'll, he'll put it in the preambles, but also like in the middle of a story sometimes or... Um, to bookend a story or anything like that. Um, but the, the stories, the, the plot of the stories tie so well with those. The, the style of course is, is what falls apart in that aspect. But I, I do think that he does a good job as far as like structure goes. Um, structurally this makes sense to me the way that he writes Mm -hmm. yeah no i I get that and especially in the key moments when there's a lot to unpack i think i mean in the i know i made jokes about the chameleon analogy earlier which i I don't rescind those (laughs) jokes i I feel pretty confident in my (laughs) assessment of that uh, analogy but i Mm -hmm. think the when he does get into i you know i like that he sprinkles in a variety of languages especially uh, is it afrikaans like seeing that on the page just feels I don't know. That language has a strange Englishness to it, but it feels so. I don't, there's like something about the lettering in that language is striking to me. I'd have to think more about it. But yeah, seeing it all interwoven and he incorporates a lot of that. I think all that stuff works pretty well. It's kind of like the on the ground feeling at times, you, you know, the immersiveness of it. I think the immersiveness in terms of, uh, let's just broadly say, sensory information basically doesn't exist. But the immersiveness in terms of like, some of the speaking and relationships, I think, kind of works, you know. I feel kind yeah. of in it. I do have to end with one cocktail party quote. I'm, I feel very, I don't know, firm that we have to end with one more conversation. But do you have another one to throw out there? 
Yeah, it was just one. That, so the one that's from page 118. Yeah, yeah. So a page before yours. People are willing to accept you if they see you as an outsider trying to assimilate into their world. But when they see you as a fellow tribe member attempting to disavow the tribe, that is something they will never forgive. Um so I chose this one because the story that goes along with this is like very much an example of this where he um, essentially he is choosing, right? Because he's he's colored, he's he's classified as colored, um, but he, he makes the point that you have to choose one or the other. It's like it, he can't just be colored. He has to be colored and um, white or colored and black, right? So mm-hmm, he, he mm-hmm. cannot, um, he can't just be himself. He has to choose a side in a lot of ways. And so um, when he finally does choose a side, which he does by deciding to uh, go into the, I think he called it like class B school or whatever. They have a, yeah, yeah I mean, their school terminology, I was going to say it's odd to talk about a culturally imperialist thing to say. I, it's just very different than what we say. I don't like that. They call prom matric or something. That's in the second half. The matric. But, yeah. yeah I, that like matriculation. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's just all kinds of small things like that. It definitely, anyway, yes, I understand what you're saying. It's, I, it's a term I won't remember. I definitely don't remember. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but the, he was pointing out that like by choosing a side, he essentially is like forever cutting ties with another side, um, with the, with the one that he didn't choose. Right. And then Mm -hmm. if he, but he can still like, because he's a chameleon, (laughs) he can (laughs) go, Uh um, in between, but he's just never actually a part of one or the other. So, yeah. His that deepens in the second half. So I'll, again, just I'm going to ruin our segment. We're clearly I'm just taking it over at this point, just interweaving it at will. But <laughs> <laughs> that definitely comes up in the second half and continues to expand on those thoughts. So yeah, nice. that's a good one to pick up on too. Okay, I'm going to do. I know we're running over our usual time for the first half, but who knows with the edits? This episode might be five minutes long. It'll be me making the <laughs> joke about the cats, and then you going, "I really like this," and then I'll say, "See you next time." Between the pages, <laughs> you had some nice things to say yeah yeah no i know i well i'm trying but anyway okay so we have to end with this conversation i wanted to hold this one for the end so i'm going to read the quote first and then i'll try and propose a, a question to you and we'll see how we can say it uh this is when he burns down that innocent person's house uh, that innocent yeah. family's house i should say so uh this is on page 90 when he's reflecting on that he did that it was incidental he i mean if you're listening to this number of the book he leave some matches out in a in a house he w- was supposed to be in. I think he was invited in, but he was trying to show someone how to burn, start fires, and then he left his fire-making equipment uh, on the pile or something, and then it burned a, a house down. Anyway, he says, quote on 90, I didn't feel bad about it at all. I still don't. The lawyer in me maintains that I'm completely innocent. There were matches, and there was a magnifying glass, and there was a mattress, and then clearly a series of unfortunate events. Things catch fire sometimes. That's why there's a fire brigade. But everyone in my family will tell you Trevor burned a house down. If people thought I was naughty before, after the fire, I was notorious. And then I'm just going to pick some quotes from the ending of this chapter. But I was blessed with another trait I inherited from my mother, her ability to forget the pain in life. I remember that the thing that caused trauma, but I don't hold on to that trauma. I never let the memory of something painful prevent me from trying something new. And then he ends by saying, like, you'll have a few bruises and they'll remind you of what happened and that's okay. But after a while, the bruises fade and they fade for a reason because now it's time to get up to some shit again. Uh, Amanda, my question is this. 
Why should we care about anything this person has to say? Why do why mm. do I care about this this man? Uh, this is my final question, and I I want to finish the book before I pose it because I think it's going to be my essay question to you. Um, not okay. not just, and I think the rude way of asking <laughs> this is like, is he a sociopath? Which I that's you know that's a jokey. There's my Trevor Noah Gallows humor coming out. He's influencing me. I don't think that's a fair way to pose the question. Um, why? So if we ignore the content of his life, which we can't because he has inarguably led a truly remarkable, fascinating life and was positioned in a way in history that is just it's it's beyond unique. It's it's a tale that needed to be told. Uh, why should I listen to anything he has to say? I he is devoid of empathy at seemingly every turn. He goes out of his way to remark upon that things don't matter to him. Um, it is an interesting perspective to think I, it shouldn't matter that I burn that person's house down because I'm fine. Uh, it could very well be that the family now granted he also, and I think I cut this quote, he says they're white people. They have insurance. They'll get like their house back that he makes that point pretty clear that his lack of empathy for their trauma is like, it's they're white and have insurance. Again, I'm not even here to weigh in on the social dynamics of that. I, I frankly don't even disagree with that perspective too, too much. Though I do disagree with the basic lack of human understanding and empathy. Um, so I would ask again in a very pointed and annoying way that I've been ramping up here for a book that could be read by a fifth grader and maybe would best be targeted at a fifth grader's understanding of the world. Why should he be the person whose point of view I read and grapple with and understand? Oh, man, that's such a tough question, especially after the quotes that you just pointed out. Um <laughs> Wow. Uh, I don't know, honestly. it's That's tough to say. I think because he is, I don't know, honest? Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I, I certainly don't <laughs> interpret any of it as sort of like, you know, despite how many young childhood stories are in here, I don't read it as fibs or anything like that. Like, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't. I don't think any of it's exaggerated per se. I'm not here to, again, I can't even call into question the the record of it. Um, I don't think he has anything interesting to say about his life. And I, and I want to leave this quote in because it's an egregious thing to say about a book this popular, this beloved, and about a life this way lived. I truly don't think I've taken one meaningful or interesting thing away from his life which is a staggering thing to say about a life that's, I, and I can't say this enough, truly fascinating and important to learn about at like a moment in history that needs to be deeply understood. I don't think, I just, <laughs> I guess we'll get to this when we finish the book too, because I think there are some pretty interesting ways that this gets complicated or reinforced in the back half, again, alluding to that. Talk about aggressive mm. foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> I, I truly don't think... I mean, granted, maybe, and this the second half of the book will really enforce this, I think he was so made for America, I'm, like, thrilled he's an America media talent because he has a lack of empathy and sociopathy and greed, which, again, the back half can get into his that nature, that is, like... And, and again, to be a, that way as a child, he's an adult writing a book about his life. He can't give us something to take away other than if you don't get hurt and don't show it, it's cool, keep going. Like... I don't to feed it to me in a cliche. That's what you got. Like be fearless, kid. It's a it's a type of American individualism, a recklessness to it. Um, that when I hit that chapter, I was really stunned. I think that's when I texted you. That's when I texted you. Mm -hmm. and I think I said like I think I actively loathe this book. I don't even 
think it's that I dislike the style, which I hope I've done a decent enough job explaining. I think I like actively dislike this and like think it's actively harmful or bad. Not that my feelings are hurt or that my morals are hurt, <laughs> but it's like, I don't see the purpose of this book. I don't get this. What am I, what am I missing? I guess. Am I missing something? I look at this as um, his project to just point out Uh, that there's a lot that people, I think, especially in America, don't know a lot about as far as South Africa and apartheid. Um, And maybe along that line, like, I mean, he is a product of that time as well, and, like, perhaps Mm -hmm. his lack of empathy, which which he kind of develops later, too, the, the lack of empathy is partly because he is always an outsider, right? Doesn't, is one of his chapters Mm -hmm. named outsider? Um, yeah, I think where later. He, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's always um, considered an other, right? So he's, he, it's very hard for him to make friends and all that stuff. So for him to feel empathy, I think is difficult because he just, he talks about how awkward he is a lot of the time in interactions, especially with women and stuff like that. So I think that even as like a little kid, he, mm-hmm. he felt different because he was alienated from kids too. He wasn't allowed to play with the kids in his grandma's neighborhood because right, they right. thought that he would be carried off. Yeah. And from his dad in the park. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. I think it just goes to show like the effects, the mental effects, the emotional effects that this system had on him and just to be clear he does not phrase it that way you you provided right, he that does reading not. for him this this is my interpretation yes, of it. like stuff like that yeah. Yeah, yeah this is he does not his reading was clear i just <laughs> yeah. read it i just read his reading he wrote that as an yeah adult, exactly so I, that is his reading. perhaps i'm being overly generous just want to be clear on that this is what i'm I, reading no i like. want to, i and i want you to continue to say literally anything to respond to my you know ramblings but like i just want to make it like his words i i spoke them i don't Again, another moment for me where I thought, am I missing the humor of this? Like, I don't think I am at all. I, unless, again, I'm like deeply misreading the tone and or whatever. I finished that and I was like, this is a, this is like stunning to me. Now it's moved beyond like deeply uninteresting and I think written by a stand-up comedian who has no literary voice, which, you know, whatever. He can tell his life story in any way he wants. But I, th- th- I got to that part and I was like, whoa, this is like a different kind of narcissism or something that is like a really unique version of it um yeah yeah, i i was stunned by that part so i just thought i'd end on it any final quotes from the first half of born a crime by trevor noah or i know i i maybe just cut you off but any responses to that or anything else really at all um no, I think I'm good for right now. I, I've got to ponder that question some more in, in yeah. preparation. For a... I'll throw some version of that essay to you. I, yeah. I'll probably, you know, I'll try and tweak it a bit for the back half, but it'll be roughly some version of that. Um, how about this? Can I can I man- emotionally manipulate you and make the essay question? If would you read this out loud to your daughter? Maybe I'll do that. <laughs> and why or why not? <laughs> oh, there you uh, go. Yeah, I can. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll you know poke and prod at your at your sensitive. You know, your like I don't know. I was trying to think of like matronly instinct. I don't even know if that's the right way to phrase it. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> that's what we're doing here in the pod. Um, matronly instinct. I, yeah, I guess. Or, so old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could have said grand matronly though that would be factually incorrect you know oh my yeah, god yeah. 
<laughs> uh, probably not a word. Um, all right, so that's part one of our book club on, again, uh, the book is Born a Crime by Trevor Notes, an autobiography. We'll be doing part two next week, so we'll cover the back half of the book if I haven't already alluded or spoiled enough in this episode. But there are interesting <laughs> follow-ups, though, so hopefully that gave you a sense of, like, that some of these threads pick back up and they're worth talking about. So we'll cover the back half next Friday. If this book discussion doesn't interest you, then we have other books coming up. I'm going to read them in order. We've got You Can't Keep a Good Woman Down by Alice Walker, My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris, and The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger by Stephen King, which is the first book in that series, by the way, in case the... I think that title's pretty clear, but anyway, just to clarify that. <laughs> we have been, as always, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We thank you so much for listening, and as always, we'll see you between the pages. Thank you.